0: Well lately I've found myself uh, either thinking in my head or actually saying out loud something along the lines of I just don't think I can do this anymore. I've had enough, I just can't keep going and I wonder if there's anyone else who can identify with those kind of sentiments Sometimes life can feel a bit like a marathon. I don't know if anyone else got stuck in the marathon traffic this morning, but I did. Adelaide Marathon is apparently on today. I definitely wasn't running, but I saw some of the runners and I thought, yeah, sometimes you can uh, feel a bit like how they look. You can feel like you've been running too long or you've been running too hard or been running too fast. And so I think the question for this morning is what do you do when you get to that point where you just want to give up? I think in marathon running they call it hitting the wall. What do you do when you hit the wall? Now this sounds like a very dreary topic and there may be some in the room who right now are fearing another dreary sermon from me because I think I might have given a few in recent times. Uh, But actually we should note up front that this morning we come back to the study of Philippians and Philippians is a letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi and it's actually not dreary, it's a very encouraging letter. And today we are launching into chapter 3, where Paul is encouraging these believers in Philippi to persevere. It's a word about perseverance. So we start by unpacking that word a little bit. To persevere means to persist, or to continue steadfastly, or to maintain your purpose despite your difficulties or obstacles or discouragement. And Paul knows these believers in Philippi are going to hit certain hardships along the way. And when they do, he knows it's going to be very hard for them to keep following Jesus. But he doesn't want them to give up. And so he writes these words to encourage them to persevere. Now in the text this morning, we're going to find Paul using some athletic imagery which I sort of chuckled to myself because I'm not a particularly athletic person. Um, But as I contemplated Paul's words and the athletic imagery, I had this one particular memory just rise to the surface for me. It was an athletic memory because it came from when I was seven years old. Uh, It was back when I was in year three. It was my year three sports day. And I remember my year three sports day, the long distance run, Uh, I can't tell you how long the long distance run was only that it was a few times around our oval when I was very little that oval felt very large I'm sure it was actually very very small Uh, but in the olden days when I was a child um, you didn't have to be really good at running to go in the long distance race you just had to run. I should put one foot in front of the other and that's exactly what I did. And so I don't remember whether I came first or last or somewhere in the middle. I don't remember how many people were in the race. I don't really remember anything about it except this one very vivid memory... I remember the point in the race, it was toward the end, getting to this particular turn on the oval, I can still picture it in my mind, and huddled on the sidelines of the oval was this group of year seven students, and you know when you're in year three, in the olden days, year sevens went to primary schools, and um, when you're in year three, they're like the big wigs of the school, you really look up to them, and so my little year three mind, I'm there, and there's the year sevens, and some of them were from my team, which was a And they were cheering for my team and for me. They were cheering, go Gish! go Janice. And I remember that feeling of my little seven-year-old legs being just spurred on to keep running because these big year sevens were cheering for me and even to try to get a bit faster toward the finish line. And I think there's something there in that for me, uh, really, that depicts this word from Paul to the Philippians. Here's this letter from someone who, this, the people in this church, they love him, they respect him. And he's writing with words to spur them on, to keep running, to persevere, to persist in following Jesus, especially on those days when they really want to give up. Uh, As always, I say up front that I'm teaching this lesson because I desperately need to learn it, not because I've got it worked out. I definitely haven't mastered it. Uh, We're going to split the text into three sections. We're going to look at three things that could cause uh, us to give up and the encouragements that Paul gives to counter those. So three things you could lose confidence that would make you stop running And Paul encourages them to put their confidence in Jesus. Uh, Two, you could get distracted or disheartened and Paul's going to encourage them to press on. And three, you could actually go the wrong way and Paul's going to encourage them to follow Jesus. So starting with this thing about confidence, they say that long distance running is not just a test of your physical endurance, but of your mental tenacity. One of the most detrimental things that can happen during a race is if your mind becomes full of the fear of failure. You can be in danger of giving up because your confidence is wavering. And this is the first thing that I think Paul speaks to in verses 1 to 11. Let's look at them together, thinking about having confidence in Jesus no matter what. So look at verse 1. He writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it's a safeguard for you. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evil doers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in King Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Let's pause there for a second because this, this doesn't sound very encouraging to me. Uh, this sounds like a warning. He's warning the Philippians about dogs, <laughs> evildoers, or these mutilators of the flesh, um, What's going on here? The Philippian church, we understand, was full of Gentile believers. That is, primarily full of non-Jewish people. And Paul knows that there were some Jews who had come amongst the people in the Philippian church and they were stirring up trouble with these Gentile believers by suggesting that they should be following certain Jewish religious requirements. That is, things like getting circumcised, having your flesh mutilated, um, or keeping dietary laws, or not breaking the Sabbath, And this was causing confusion for them. So Paul says, don't listen to those guys because their confidence is in the flesh. Now that's a funny phrase, can mean different things in different places. I think here the flesh seems to be referring to their Jewish ethnicity. He's saying, look, they're filling you with doubt and uncertainty. They're making your confidence waver, but their confidence is in the wrong thing. They've put their confidence in their Jewish ethnicity. Now, how can Paul be so sure? How can they actually trust what Paul's saying? He keeps going. Verse 4, I myself have reasons for that sort of confidence. If someone else thinks, they I have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in their Jewish, Jewish ethnicities, I have more. And here he lists his Jewish pedigree. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And then here's some of his accomplishments. Um, prior to meeting Jesus in regard to the law a Pharisee we know no one was more serious about the law than the Pharisees um <clears throat> uh, in in as for zeal verse 6 that's his re- religious passion persecuting the church we know in Acts Paul was dragging people off to prison he was watching them make making sure they got killed that sort of thing um, so he was very zealous then as for righteousness based on the law faultless Now that might sound like, oh, that's a bit much, Paul, probably you're not faultless. Um, But what he means there is that he was innocent as far as the law was concerned because most of the time he would have kept the law and when he didn't, on that odd occasion that he broke it, he'd go to the temple and make the necessary sacrifices to ensure his innocence or being faultless. Now that list might not mean a whole lot to us, but the original Philippian hearers would have recognised that Paul was the bee's knees. Uh, He was surpassingly great in terms of his Jewish pedigree. And if anyone had reason to be confident in their Jewish ethnicity, it was him. But what does he say about it? Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of King Jesus. Verse 8. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, King Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Now here Paul starts using an accounting metaphor, apologies Mark, this will be very basic, could be wrong, correct me afterwards, but it seems to me like accounting terms here because he's talking about gains or profits and losses. You can see the two words there, they're accounting terms. And when Paul met Jesus, he says he realized that all the things that he'd been confident in because he'd thought that they were profits, like being circumcised, the tribe of Benjamin, blah, 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 were actually losses. That is, he reevaluated his balance sheet, did the calculations, and he discovered he'd got his columns mixed up. The profits, The things he thought were profits turned out to be losses. It's hard for us to understand the value of those things in Paul's day, but essentially, he was a person of position, power, prestige. You know, we equate it to money, career, success. And when he met Jesus, he lost his significant standing in the Jewish community and all the things that went along with that. But he says none of that mattered compared to knowing Jesus. It's important to note that the things on the list are not bad. He's not saying they're bad. It's just they're considered losses when he compares them to the value of knowing Jesus. Uh, The next next thing he says is interesting. Verse 9, he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain King Jesus and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in King Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. There's one thing left in Paul's prophets column, and it's Jesus. Everything else, not on its own, but if you compare it to Jesus, he says it's like garbage. Now, apparently, garbage is quite a polite trans- translation of the word that Paul uses there. Scholars suggest that in the original Greek, it could be more literally translated as excrement. Not probably what you expect to find in the Bible. And a discussion about poo is probably not all that appropriate for a Sunday morning sermon. Someone can tell me. But I have to say, when you have a baby in your house, uh, there are certain references to poo that are a bit unavoidable. Probably talk about poo more than you've talked about poo in your whole life. Um, for example, when said baby has done a poo, no one really wants to take care of it. Everyone's like, oh, he stinks, get him away from me. Um, and Paul's really saying that since he met Jesus, those things that he put his confidence in, you know, putting confidence in his Jewish ethnicity, has become stinky. It's just like, nah, oh, get the, get it away from me. No, that's not what I want. It's not in my prophets column anymore. He realises he could never be declared in the right based on that previous list of gains, but only by putting his confidence in Jesus. And so he says there, verse 10, I want to know King Jesus Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now that sounds funny to me because I think doesn't Paul already know him? Actually, he met him in person on that road to Damascus. But he's talking here about a deep knowledge, that relational knowledge where you just know more and more. He wants to know Jesus so much so that he lives like Jesus himself and starts to look like Jesus and he says he wants that even when it means suffering and dying because he knows that resurrection lies on the other side now there's probably no dogs trying to pressurize you into getting circumcised I hope or keeping some dietary laws or something so what on earth does this first bit of this chapter of this letter to the Philippians have to do with us what's it got to do with us We've got to ask the question, what could cause us to give up? What could cause us to waver or weaken in our following Jesus? Well, it is when our confidence is in the wrong things, isn't it? It is when we get our profit and our loss columns mixed up. I think it's especially when the currency of who we think we are starts to become dominated, not by who we are in Jesus, but by who we are in the flesh Now, that flesh problem for the Philippines was confusion about Jewish pedigree. We don't have that. But what might be our cultural confusion about who we are? I think sometimes it's when the idea of who we are becomes dominated by how much we earn, by where we live, by who we spend our time with, uh, by whether we got a promotion or not, by maybe our relationship status. Of course, just like for, for Paul and those guys, none of those things are bad things, but they're not who you are. And putting your confidence in what those things say about you could cause you to weaken or waver in your following of Jesus. So I think this morning it's time to reevaluate our profit and loss columns and ask ourselves that question. What's hopped into the profit column that really is actually a loss? What am I clinging to for confidence that cannot give the confidence that only Jesus gives? We hear this word from Paul, put your confidence in Jesus no matter what. I'm guessing that in the last couple of weeks, a few people amongst us might have been following the Matildas through their epic World Cup journey. I certainly pretended to be a soccer fan for a couple of moments here and there. Um, But one of the things I was really interested to hear uh, about their journey was that the girls in the team were urged to stay off social media prior to their big semi-final match. Apparently, this was to shield them from the danger of what they call technoference. A mindset expert, a guy called Mike Conway, warned the women's team that the distraction of social media noise could interrupt their big game. Uh, And this writer, Emily Patterson, in her Nine News article, she quotes his advice, explaining that technoference is the attention paid to personal technological devices at the expense of natural rhythms and interpersonal communication. I thought, oh, some of the rest of us might have some techno phobias as well, mightn't we? Um, she writes, one can pick up your phone more than 200 times a day. With each of these, a distraction to things that matter, particularly to rest, sleep and concentration on important details for improvement. Each distraction can take around 23 minutes to get back to full focus. And according to Conway, every social media like or negative comment affects the body's hormonal system in turn influencing our behaviour and physiology. So the Matildas were in danger of getting disheartened or distracted and the antidote was a social media ban. Very interesting. Now the Philippians were also at risk of becoming distracted or disheartened. Uh, But the antidote here from Paul is not a social media ban but it is for them to press on no matter what. Let's look at these next verses starting at verse 12. Paul writes, Not that I've already obtained all this, All this what? All the things he just said about knowing Jesus and the power of the resurrection. So I haven't already obtained it or already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which King Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead – I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in King Jesus. (coughs) So here's Paul diving into the athletic imagery now. We'll leave the accounting alone. And now he's likening life with Jesus to a sporting event. Uh, In those days, there were the Greco-Roman Olympic Games. And in fact, there was a stadium in Philippi. And the event that Paul seems to be describing here is a foot race. So the goal, of course, like any foot race, is the finish line. And at that finish line there would be the Roman emperor and if you won he'd be there to give you your prize. Paul likens following Jesus to this and he says don't be mistaken I'm not at the finish line yet I'm still running. Verse 12 I haven't obtained all this I haven't arrived at my goal I'm still chasing after it I'm still working still running. I wonder do you ever look at other people as though they've made it. They seem to have their life all sorted out now, Paul, being the one who'd started the church in Philippi, um, would have been someone who these people would have loved and respected, and they could have looked up to him so much that it might have seemed like he was sort of at the finish line, finish line waiting for them to catch up, but Paul's saying, no, I, I, he's reminding them, I'm still in the race. They can listen to his device, listen to his advice, because he knows what a marathon's like, he's still running it, he's running it with them. And he says, I'm pressing on toward the goal. And this is his way to call them to do the same thing. He mentions two things that are key to being able to press on there. They're in verse 13. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Let's think about those two things. Running and forgetting what is behind. When you're running behind, uh, when you're running behind, when you're running in a race, it's quite dangerous to look behind you, to look backwards. If you want to move fast in a forward direction whilst looking the opposite way in a backward direction, that's not obviously the most effective way to run. And to, to move forward in life whilst staying focused, focused on the baggage of the past is also not the best way to live. We remember the past in order to thank God and to see his faithfulness. But if we just get stuck back looking back um, it's often more with regret or pain or disappointment rather than thankfulness Um, it's often getting stuck on things that we haven't moved on from and Paul's saying urging them don't be distracted by those past things let go of those past things in order to press forward you can't press forward if you're holding on to the things behind you apparently when running Um, I've been doing it lately but the most common reason for looking back is to see where your competition's up to you know quick quick check is anyone right on my tail Um, that means probably a runner looks back if they're afraid that someone is catching them and what fear does as a mindset of course it, it causes you to run to avoid losing rather than to run with the intent to win that's a problem for your mindset and I think that can be a similar problem in our lives with Jesus that can put us in danger of giving up Um, I think we too find ourselves maybe not looking back but looking around Uh, we look around and we can become distracted by what God's doing in other people or and that can make us disheartened about our own lives And I think Paul's urging us as well, don't fall in that comparison trap, looking around, wondering, you know, what what God's doing with everyone else and comparing to yourself. Stay focused on God's call on your life and press on. So um, don't, don't look behind. And the second thing, strain toward what is ahead. Now that for me, straining, that's not a very nice word. That for me is like an imagery of the athlete who is pushing to the point of collapse because they've got their eyes on the goal. I saw a vision this week, because uh, I was thinking about running, um, of a female Olympian. She ran in the Olympic marathon back in 1984. And I understand, I think that was the first year that they actually let women run the marathon. Um, previously thought that they weren't, couldn't do it or something. And so, of course, there was a lot, you know, a lot at stake, because if you were running, you wanted to prove, yes, women can run this marathon. Um, and this poor woman, she recounts how hot it was that day. Um, and there were apparently only like four or five drink stations or something and she missed one, she missed the last one. And so by the time she got into the stadium where, you know, those stadiums are covered in Ashford, so so extremely hot and she just says her body was done, absolutely cooked but her mind was not and she said she knew in her mind she wasn't running to win, you know, people had already finished long before her but she was determined to get across that finish line And so she stumbled and she wobbled and if you watch it, the medical team are like just, you know, right there just waiting to see if they they need to catch her. But she she stays focused and she gets herself across that finish line. Now I can tell you watching it, I almost turned it off because I was like, wow, it's horrible to watch. It is not pretty. And I think that life is sometimes like that. I think that following Jesus is sometimes like that. But unfortunately, I think we live in a cultural moment that tells us that life should not. It should be pretty. In fact, it should be easy and it should be comfortable. And so if something in your life gets too hard, you should just give up, you know, move on. If something just doesn't feel so good to you anymore, just quit. Go, go on to the next thing. But Paul is urging the Philippians and us, I think, to press on and not give up. It will get hard and it might not be pretty at sometimes, but he says the goal is worth it. That goal in verse 14, which is the call of God on your life in King Jesus. Uh, He says he hasn't finished it. He's pressing on and then he has a word to to everyone, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, God will make that clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. A sign of maturity is actually knowing that you're not there yet. It is the fool who sits idle because they think they've already made it actually to not press on, to not focus forward, is as foolish as sitting down halfway through the race and just pretending that you're at the finish line. So Paul calls us, live up to what you've already attained. Don't drop back and eventually drop out. Keep moving forward. There's two things here about being distracted or disheartened. Let's think about being distracted. I wonder if it's possible that the noise and busyness of our lives could actually be distracting us from whatever God's call on our lives is. Does it ever feel to you like you're so consumed by simply needing to just react to whatever the next urgent thing is that you just can't really actually focus intentionally on moving forward as God calls you? Are our lives seemingly full and yet on reflection somewhat aimless or lacking in purpose? Paul's calling us, don't be distracted. Fix your eyes on the goal. Consider who you're becoming and then choose to press on with purpose and intentionality in living a life that seeks to reflect the beauty of Jesus. How about being disheartened? Well, maybe you know what God's calling you forward to, but you're just worn down, worn out, had enough. There's an encouragement here. Don't stop running even if you can just only barely put one foot in front of the other. Don't stop running. And I would encourage you during these difficult seasons to lean on your community to help you move forward. Maybe even today, admit to someone if you feel like this, I just don't want to follow Jesus today. I've had enough. I've had enough of this. It's too hard. And then let them come alongside you and encourage you. Let's press on no matter what. And then finally, let's think about following Jesus no matter what. Uh, Recently, back in July, there was a 10K race held in Atlanta. I confess, I didn't know any of this prior to thinking about running. I'm not, you know, secretly into running. I wish I was, but I'm not. Um, But anyway, this was also an an interesting story that I found. Uh, It was a 10K race and the woman who was um, winning, like right along the way and right toward the end, she was a seasoned Olympic runner, right? She's not. It's not some, someone shabby. She knows what she's doing. And she should have won this race and the $10,000 prize that went went with her. But what happened? 150 metres from the finish line, she took a wrong turn. Now, how could you po- possibly do this, you might ask? You watch the vision and you just your heart sinks. She followed a police motorcycle who happened to, right at the end, turn off, you know, turn the corner. He'd done his job 150 metres before the finish line. And she veered off course because she just followed it round the corner. By the time she realised what she'd done, she ran back. Her close competitors had passed her and so she came third instead of first. It is possible to veer off course because you follow someone or something and you head the wrong way. And uh, Paul knows that the Philippians are in danger of veering off because they might follow the wrong way. And so this is his, uh, him urging them in verses 17 to 21 to follow Jesus no matter what. First he says, verse 17, join together in following. Oh, it's not Jesus. He says, following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, as, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, why is Paul calling them to follow him instead of follow Jesus. In Paul's day, most people would have been illiterate. And so how do you learn? You, you learn by imitating or following others. That was the whole model of a disciple, the thing you know we read so often in the Bible. A disciple watches their rabbi. They spend lots of time with them. They learn, and they gradually live it out until they start to look like their rabbi. And so Jesus is no longer physically on earth, but Paul had met Jesus. And now Paul is following Jesus, and he invites these Philippians to follow him as he follows Jesus. What's the alternative? Who else might they end up following? Look at verse 18. For as I've often told you before, and now I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now Philippi was on a main road and many teachers would have come through Philippi and taught on the way in and out uh, when they were on their way to or from Rome and Paul knew that some of these teachers would have been hostile to the message that Jesus is the king and they would, would have offered all sorts of other alternative messages and so he's urging the Philippians watch out and don't mistakenly follow them. Why? Three things here. One, their destiny is destruction. Actually, their end goal is not life, but loss. Don't follow them uh, to that end goal. Two, their God is their stomach. What are they following? What are they chasing after? The word there for stomach in the original Greek is actually broader than just your physical stomach. It refers more generally to bodily urges. Paul's saying they are driven by their bodily appetites. Bodily appetites for food, for drink, for sex. Now, what's the problem with that? We know God is a God of pleasure and he intentionally gave us food and drink and sex as good gifts. So what's the issue? Why is Paul so, so concerned he's crying that they might follow these people? You see it there when he says their God is their stomach. The problem is when good gifts become God's. It's a chasing after food that ends in gluttony. It's a chasing after drink that ends in drunkenness and addiction. And it's a chasing after sex outside of a self sacrificing, loving marriage. Now, Paul's talking about Philippi here, but doesn't it sound a little bit like our world? Have we as Australians not got an obsession with food that's just beyond nourishment and enjoyment? The Bureau of Statistics National Health Survey a couple of years back revealed that 67% of Australian adults are overweight, overweight or obese. That's a pretty high number. That's a bit of an obsession with food, I think. What about do Australians have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol? similarly back in 2020 they did a global drug survey it was interesting because it was during the pandemic so you can say that the results were skewed but I think it's still indicative of our norm that global drug survey named Australia as the heaviest drinking nation in the world spending more time drunk than any other nation how about sex Well, we know Australia is caught up in the global industry where sex sells, sells blatantly as porn, but then of course we know underhandedly it sells all sorts of things, entertainment, fashion, plastic surgery, Botox, cosmetics, fitness, you name it. Um, And what's the message that we are sold about sex? Well, it's that you're supposedly free when you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. Ah, what's the third thing Paul says about them? Destiny is destruction. God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. He says that kind of lifestyle is held up. It's glorified as being desirable. And I think that's exactly the same for us. People flaunt that kind of lifestyle. They post it, they Instagram it, or they sell it as reality TV. And Paul's saying don't mistakenly follow them. What's the alternative he offers? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Uh, let's finish with these last verses. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord, the King, Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What does it mean our citizenship is in heaven? I think I misunderstood that phrase for a long time. can kind of seem like heaven's some sort of lofty place somewhere else out there where God is, where we know everything's lovely. And, you know, it seems like Paul's just saying, oh, you know, we don't really belong here on earth. We belong in heaven, that lovely, lofty place. And we're stuck here for a bit. So be careful. Don't follow those other characters around you. Just bunker down. Stay safe as you can. Don't get caught up in the mess and just wait because heaven you're going to be going to heaven Uh, but of course that's that's not what Paul's saying he does say that we're awaiting Jesus rule and reign we are awaiting that day when Jesus returns to earth to renew the creation with his healing justice and his transforming love I'm 100% waiting for that but in the meantime there's no bunkering down or burying your head in the sand He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and that phrase can be translated, we are a colony of heaven. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to you or I, but Philippi in northern Greece was a Roman colony. It was populated by Romans, whose job was essentially to Romanize Philippi. They weren't first and foremost just longing and waiting to go back to Rome. What were they busy doing? They were busy bringing the rule and reign of Caesar, who interestingly was referred to in those days as saviour and lord and king. They were bringing his rule and reign to Philippi. That's what they were busy about. And Paul says to these Philippians, he doesn't say we're a colony of Rome. They knew they were. He says we're a colony of heaven and our job's not so much to romanize philippi our job is to heavenize earth we're not just sitting around waiting for heaven heaven wishing we could get out of here we are to be busy bringing the law and the beauty and the culture of heaven here on earth the beauty of the rule and reign of jesus the true savior the true lord the true king Now, the rule and reign of Jesus is coming in fullness on earth. And yes, I long for the day when this broken body, which is definitely currently deteriorating, is going to be transformed. That promise is here. We're not going to forget what's coming. But right now, we are not bunkering down. We are working hard to follow Jesus by bringing the beauty of heaven here on earth. It is seemingly easier on the surface of things to just follow the cultural current That is pulling us this way and that all of the time. Just go with the flow because it looks easy, probably feels okay most of the time. But this morning I implore us to hear Paul's warning that it just doesn't end in life. Ultimately it's going to end in loss. As people we are followers and so the question this morning we must ask ourselves is who are we following what messages are our heads filled with? What's the cultural narrative that's playing on repeat in our minds? I was think, thinking about this idea of, you know, when people w- walk away from following Jesus. And it's a bit like a relationship. And you think about a marriage, most marriages don't end suddenly. Uh, obviously, at some point, you know, there might be an abrupt decision But that's always preceded by a time period in which there are many words and attitudes and actions that have acted to slowly erode that relationship. And so I think it is with people and their faith, with following Jesus. Most people don't just suddenly, bam, turn away. They often just veer off slowly. You know, church just slowly starts to lose its importance. Christian community just kind of starts to take a back seat. Worship and prayer start to feel a bit unnecessary or ineffective or just a bit irrelevant, really. And soon enough, there are other options to follow. Something else is going to pick you up in the current rather than the way of Jesus. Let's hear Paul's warning. Don't veer off. Let's follow Jesus no matter what. What does it look like to follow Jesus? That's all a bit ethereal. But this is an interesting picture, isn't it? That following Jesus looks like bringing the beauty and the culture of heaven to bear here on earth. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we're working to bring about that transformative justice and love. The love of Jesus. Now I think that topic needs several hours of discussion and thankfully we're not going to do that this morning. Um, I encourage you to take that away with your gospel group and talk about what would it look like in our lives as individuals and collectively to bring the culture of heaven to bear here on earth. I'm going to finish this morning with the words from Andy Crouch because he wrote a whole book about it called Culture Making. Uh, You might like to read it if you're interested in this topic. But here's some pertinent words. Let's finish with these. He says, I wonder what we Christians are known for in the world outside our churches. Are we known as critics of culture? Consumers, copiers, condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. Why aren't we known as cultivators? Why aren't we known as people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done why aren't we known as creators as people who dare to think and do something that's never been thought or done before something that makes the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful what could we do that would make the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful and finally he says so do you want to make culture find a community find your small group who can lovingly fuel your dreams as well as puncture your illusions find friends and form a family who are willing to see grace at work in one another's lives who can discern together which gifts and which crosses each has been called to bear find people who have a holy respect for power and a holy willingness to spend their power alongside the powerless Find some partners in the wild and wonderful world beyond church doors, and then together make something beautiful. Oh, let's pray. <coughs> God, we just um, just want to lift our community before you, because I don't know what's going on in everyone's lives, but you do. And you know who's worn out, who's discouraged who is weak and especially anyone amongst us who just is so close to giving up all sorts of things we might want to give up on Lord. but we know that the most dangerous one is we just give up on you we could just walk away and lord i ask that um even as we've heard this morning that you would fill our hearts with your courage I want to ask you to fill them full to overflowing, but Lord, even if it's just a drop to get us started, enough courage just to put one foot in front of the other, would you do that? And then I ask God as we endeavour... Stumblingly and sometimes veeringly, and whatever, as we're trying to follow you, Jesus, would you make us a community who gets alongside one another? God, would you give us, even as we gather, um, we continue to gather over coffee, would you give us a spirit of honesty that we are in a safe place that we can just say what we're in the places where we just want to give up? And would you make us a people of encouragement who listen, who listen well, and then who know how to give one another courage, your courage. I pray it in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.